The passage we're talking about this morning is the Great Commission. Uh, It's already been read. We'll refer back to it a few times in the next few minutes. Um, But it is basically, you know when you have a race, they fire the gun and all the runners start? The passage we're looking at this morning is like that moment. And what y'all have been spending the past year and a half on is like the race. So we're going to rewind and go back to the very beginning of that race and uh, talk about it and how it applies to us. And do your best to remember where you were and what you were doing about two months ago on Easter Sunday. Because this account picks up right after uh, Easter Sunday when Jesus was uh, not in the tomb where he was supposed to be. The women were confused why he wasn't there. The guards were confused. Uh, and this is what, ha- what happened next is what we read uh, a few minutes ago. Three things to keep your eyes open for. We'll pray and we'll get into this. Number one, notice the resistance to the resurrection of Jesus. Notice how much pushback there was to it. Not just from the, the non-believers, but even from the disciples. The second thing to keep your eyes open for is our mission or the church's mission in conquering that resistance throughout the world. And the last thing is, what's our motivation as the church, as this body of people, even this church, goes out into the world to push back and to conquer that resistance? What's the motivation for us? Because that gets tiring and that's hard. So keep your eyes open to the resistance, our mission, and our motivation in that mission. We should pray before we get into this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is one thing that you do not leave to our imagination, but you bend over backwards to tell us that when your church is gathered together, you are not just burdened to be there. You don't roll your eyes and say, okay, another week I'll be here with you, but you delight. You take pleasure in being with us this morning in this room. You take pleasure in giving us your Holy Spirit who opens eyes and warms hearts and stirs thoughts. And you delight in bearing patiently with us your slow-to-learn disciples, sons and daughters. So Jesus, what we ask from you this morning, we expect to receive from you because we know your heart. We know who you are. And we ask that you would come. Would we leave this morning feeling like those disciples on the walk to Emmaus who said our hearts burned within us when we were with him? Would our hearts burn in us? Would you warm our cold souls by your very presence? That is a tall order that we ask of you, but we know you are more than capable, more than willing, and more than able in doing this very thing. So we ask it in your name. Amen. Have you heard of the term before, uh, disruptive innovation? It's a business term, so you might not have heard of that phrase before, but you're really familiar with the idea of a disruptive innovation. Because all of us, no matter how old you are or how young you are, our lives are happening in the midst of some of the biggest disruptive innovations in history. Here's what a disruptive innovation is. It is an invention or an idea or a product that is so radical and so new and so far outside of the box that it, requ- it, it changes the landscape of everything. It makes everybody go back to square one and start over 
and reimagine your life because of this new invention or this new idea. And disruptive innovations create a whole new set of winners and losers. Um, they, uh, they create a lot of enemies. People who are vested in the status quo don't like disruptive innovations because it means life was comfortable and predictable for me and now I've got to go reimagine, I've got to go start over in light of this new thing. And so disruptive innovations create a lot of pushback. And there's two options that everybody has when faced with a disruptive innovation. You can yield to it and allow it to reshape and reorder your life around it. Or you can resist it. And if you resist it, you get left behind in the old way of doing things, the old world. So real quick, what are a couple of disruptive innovations? This is one, right? Every one of you has it in your pocket. We'll be using it hopefully in 30 minutes, not before. The cell phone, and not just the cell phone, but the smartphone. It's a disruptive innovation. If you're, if you're too young to, imagine, to remember a world before the cell phone, ask your parents later. But when I was growing up, when you were growing up, it was landlines, right? And, and that old world that's now obsolete relied on these bell companies. Each region of the country had a monopoly bell company. I'm from Georgia. And so it was called Southern Bell. And everybody paid their money to Southern Bell. And Southern Bell went around and strung up these lines and t- and on wooden poles. And they'd connect it to your house. And if you wanted to be able to talk to anybody else, that's what you had to do. They were the only game in town. AT&T or El Paso Bell or whatever it was. They had a monopoly on it. Um, people would call you all the time and annoy you around dinner time trying to sell you on long distance plans, right? You remember that? And if you wanted privacy on your phone, you had to get a really long cord so you can walk in the other room and hope your siblings didn't pick up or your parents and listen to you. You had to pay a telephone company to have that service. And, and now what's happened? Around the early to mid-90s, someone invents a cell phone, and a, about a decade later, they invent a smartphone, an iPhone, that has radically changed the way you do your, your banking. You take a picture of a check, and money's in your account. It changes the way relationships and romance happen. My wife and I wouldn't be married today if it wasn't for Skype on our phones because she lived in Colorado and I was in Philadelphia uh, for the bulk of our relationship. It changes the way you communicate. It changes whether some of you will leave town and go far from your parents or stay close to home because now you can still see them, talk to them every day, wherever you are. So the invention of the cell phone, like I said, with any disruptive innovation... It radically alters the landscape. Everybody has to go back to square one and reimagine life in light of this new invention, right? It creates a lot of resistance. You know who is pushing back against cell phones being licensed and all these towers going up back in the late 90s? The Bell companies. And they put out stuff like cell phones will give you brain cancer, the radiation is bad for you, and they were telling Congress, don't let this pass. What's going to happen to all the... Plastic telephone makers. What's going to happen to all the telephone linemen? It's going to be horrible for the economy. People had a vested interest in the status quo. And so they resisted this new disruptive innovation because it disrupted them. And it created a whole new set of winners and losers. 
and it made an entire world obsolete and left behind. And everybody had, hopefully all of you have made the decision to yield yourself to this new invention. I, maybe there's one or two people here who re- refuse to, to yield and you're resisting this disruption. And you know you've been left behind by this culture, by this society, because everybody has moved on. Netflix is another one, right? I I stopped by Walgreens on the way here and I saw the red box out front. How many of you have been to a Blockbuster lately on a Friday night to walk through aisle by aisle to pick up a big piece of plastic you're going to stick in your VCR? Nobody. Blockbuster doesn't exist anymore. It's bankrupt and so are all the other video companies. Um, When Netflix and these streaming services were created, guess who resisted it? Hollywood. The movie industry. Tons of money. They lobbied Congress. This is copyright infringement. We have a system in place. This is going to destroy the movie theaters. It's going to destroy the economy. So these disruptive innovations, they're not just wonderful news. Yes, progress, advancement. They make a lot of enemies too, right? It it completely radically alters the landscape and everybody has to go back to square one and start over and reimagine your life in light of this new invention. And it creates an obsolete world that if you cling to, you will be left behind. Or this new world that if you yield to, it will alter and shape your life, hopefully for the better. Here's the point this morning. We need to think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the most disruptive innovation in human history. It is the radical act of God that does everything cell phones did and Netflix did except cosmically, existentially, spiritually. It create, it, it's a whole new landscape. It's a whole new ballgame now. It's a whole new world. And everybody, believer, non-believer, whether you grew up in a religious household or not a religious, whether you grew up in Tehran or El Paso, you have to reimagine your life in light of that event. That the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, died and came back to life and lives and reigns forever. That is the disruption that confronts you and I and everybody around you. And just like with all the other disruptive innovations, the options are, I'm just saying this is just the way it is, the options are yield yourself to this and be radically reshaped. Your life will be reordered around it or resist it. And if you resist it, you're left behind because this new world is is surging forward with Jesus at the helm, with his spirit being poured out on the church. So it's yield to it or be left behind in an obsolete world. Now, if what I'm saying is true and the resurrection of Jesus is is the most powerful and unprecedented disruptive innovation, then you would expect that everything else would be uh, the most powerful as well, right? Even the resistance to it, right? Disruptive innovations create resistance. Amongst whom? Amongst anybody invested in the old way of doing things, the old world, the status quo, the the people who have power at that moment in history had a very strong interest in not letting go of those reins. And just like Hollywood did to Netflix, just like the Bell companies did to cell phones, they weren't quiet about it. 
And so they would use whatever means possible to push back against it and to try to put Jesus back in the tomb, which is what these guards did, right? They go to the chief priests and the elders in the cover of night, terrified, and they said, they're thinking their heads are going to be gone. They had one job. They failed to do it. And they're saying, go and tell everybody that his disciples came and took him, i.e., he's still dead. Tell everybody no no disruption happened. It's status quo. Tomorrow will be just the same as today. Oh, no. Talk about a tomorrow that was nothing like yesterday. It was that moment. And it's never been the same since. And so everybody has to reimagine all of life from that moment forward. We have to go back to square one. Square one is this day. Square one, this is where you must take yourself back to and reimagine everything. That's what the, the disruptive effect of the resurrection is. So what are, let's zoom in a little bit. What specifically are the disruptions and interruptions that the resurrection of Jesus throws into our lives? How does it mess with the status quo and jostle things around? Here's how the Bible talks about resurrection. Old Testament, New Testament, throughout. It doesn't talk about resurrection as a magic trick. Watch this. This guy's going to be dead, and now he's alive, like a magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That's never how the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Look what God can do. Isn't this awesome? He's so powerful. Never does it talk about it like a magic trick or a cool, hey, get a load of this. The way the Bible talks about resurrection always is this way. It talks about it in terms of of fixing a dilemma that we all have. Here's the way God kind of describes reality. You remember back in, uh, back early on in the Old Testament, back in Genesis, back in Exodus, it comes up in Deuteronomy. You remember what God said the wages of sin is? Death. He told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this fruit, surely you'll die. So death is, is an alien invader to this world. It's not supposed to be a part of our world. Here's the dilemma. Only guilty people die. That's how God made reality. Only guilty people die. Innocent people live forever. And so it's not like if someone dies, a grandma, a spouse, that it's like, oh, she was an extra bad sinner. It's, it's just, all it means is that that person and us one day, the smoking gun evidence that we were born guilty, that we are rebels, that we are not right, that something's wrong with us, is that we die. Death is the smoking gun evidence that you, in and of yourself, are guilty. So here's the dilemma for the Bible. Why does Jesus die? Why does the one who claimed to be God in flesh, how is it conceivable that he dies? Only guilty people die. That's the way it is. Jesus said, it is finished. They shoved the spear through this part of his body, piercing who knows how many internal organs. He suffocates, he dies, and he's so dead that he's starting to stink, and so they bring spices to wrap him in it in the tomb. And they put him in a grave where you put dead people. He was dead. How does he die? And then the other dilemma, on the other side of this, because the Bible, you know, the whole, it takes this turn... 
And it says that he was raised up from the dead. It says there were 500 people like you that you could touch and talk to and listen and interrogate. 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People that journalists could go interview and put them in the newspaper and say, this guy, this girl, this kid saw him, touched him, ate with him. How does that happen? Because only guilty people die and only innocent, righteous, holy, perfect people live. You see how this is a little bit of a dilemma? If the Bible has been telling the truth all along, how is this true? Well, here's how the Bible describes it. This is going to sound familiar to you, but you remember in Isaiah 53, all this talk about uh, this trade that happens. 1 Corinthians talks about it. Paul talks about it. He who knew not sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What is the proof? What is the proof and the smoking gun evidence that your sin was transferred onto Jesus and punished exhaustively? What's the proof? That he died. Because he wouldn't have died if your and my sin wasn't put on his shoulders. That's how you know that God actually took your past and put it on Jesus and made it his past. And he was punished for it. He was crucified for it. He was alienated from God from that, separated. And Isaiah 53 talks about he was crushed for our iniquities, right? He was pushed away. He was the scapegoat. That's why Jesus died. He who was innocent was made guilty, was accounted guilty. And he was treated as a guilty one, right? He was buried with the wicked, counted as a transgressor. That's why he died. Why did he raise up? So I've just appealed to things you already know and and, and hopefully proved only guilty people die. So now you're like, okay, case closed. Well, why why is he walking around in heaven right now? Why is he reigning and ruling and praying for you and pursuing you this morning? Why? How does a guilty man get out of the out of the grave? Because he's innocent. Because the payment's been made, the sat, the the penalty has been satisfied. There is no there is no punishment left to be poured out on him. There's no more payment needed. Paid in full. The end of Romans 4 says Jesus was raised up for our vindication. Which means that if you have looked at Jesus by faith, we're about to come back up for water. Hang with me one more second. If you have looked to Jesus by faith, you have been married to him, united to him. You're a Siamese twin with the second person of the Trinity. Which means everything that's true of him is now true of you. He lives forever, you live forever. He is free from the grave, you're free from the grave. He is at liberty, free from sin, you're free from sin. He is beloved by the Father, you're beloved by the Father. He is, the gates of hell will have not and will not prevail against him, they will not prevail against you. Nothing can separate him from the love of his Father, nothing can separate you. Get it? Whatever's true of Jesus is now true of you. Which means, if he was raised up and vindicated, which means proven innocent... You have been vindicated, proven innocent. When the Bible talks about resurrection, it doesn't talk about magic tricks, bunnies, and hats. It is deadly serious. And 
incredibly hopeful. When it talks about resurrection, it says it is your death and your life that we're talking about. Okay? That's how the Bible talks about resurrection. So, when we talk about this stuff about disruptive innovations and and the resurrection changing everything, that's what we mean. The resurrection changes everything in your life. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is kind of just, his mind is exploding with all the implications of this. And he says, uh, he, he basically gets to the point where he says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, you remember what he says? We of all people are most to be pitied. Because why? Why should we be pitied if Jesus isn't raised from the dead? He said, because we're still dead in our sins. We are without hope in this world. You can't say anything at a funeral. You can't say anything in the face of tragedy. You can't say anything in the face of being captured by your sin. You're just stuck. The world is the way it is and ever will be. So eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's what happens if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. That's what the significance of him coming out of that tomb meant for his people. So, let's get back to our metaphor of this disruptive innovation. We said it does all the stuff we've talked about. You have to reimagine everything. It changes everything. Everybody's got to go back to square one and start over. We also said it creates tremendous resistance, right? Huge pushback. The more disruptive the thing is, the more pushback. Because we all love the status quo. We all want life to be tranquil and predictable. And we want tomorrow to be just like yesterday, right? And so Matthew uh, does this neat thing at the very end of his, of his story about Jesus. He, he just like puts these two accounts right next to each other that didn't happen next to each other. And they're, they're paralleled. And the devil doesn't appear here, but he appears everywhere else. And Matthew gives us plenty of, evidence, plenty of warrant to talk this way about it. It's the devil commissioning his disciples and sending them out into the world with a false narrative. This happened the day uh, they discovered Jesus wasn't in the tomb. About three weeks later to a month later, Jesus meets with his disciples on the mountain and commissions them. The false king commissioning his disciples to go and spread lies in the world. The true king commissioning his disciples to the ends of the earth to tell the world, you're not dead in your sin anymore if you look to Jesus. You're free. God is going to change everything. You see how he does that? When do you expect the director of a movie to be most careful and strategic in how he tells the story? The beginning and the end, right? The first minute of a movie and the last minute are where he is most careful. This is the very last words of Matthew's gospel. Is it by accident that he is comparing the devil commissioning his disciples, sending them out to the ends of the earth in El Paso, Las Cruces, and then Jesus sending out his disciples with a, with a, with a different narrative into the ends of the earth. You see how resistant those who had a vested interest in the old world were. This world, Matthew says, it spread among the Jews up until, this, up until the day of his writing this. We know 2,000 years later it's still spreading around. It takes on a lot of different forms. Jesus never existed. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. God's not real. We've proven this wrong by now. 
where's the evidence today, all that kind of stuff. It takes on a lot of different clever forms, but this narrative washes up on the shore of your life every day, right? This satanic narrative, this fake news of a narrative that didn't happen. Now, note which of these stories had eyewitnesses and which didn't. Devil's narrative, you know, you you hear sometimes, man, there's no eyewitness evidence. Like, verify for me that Jesus... 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead and walking around for about 40 days. Nobody saw what these other guys saw. They were paid off and bribed to go tell everybody the disciples took his body. Only one account had eyewitnesses that saw it. Their account is simply not true. Now, it's one thing if it's this like philosophical debate. Hey, everybody, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. His disciples put him back in, or they stole him away. That's one thing. But remember what we said the implications of that narrative are. It's the devil commissioning his disciples to go into the world and tell the world, you're hopeless. You're dead and only getting deader. God didn't lift a finger when his world broke. He's shouting at you to get your act together. Or the devil's sending people off on all these other little rabbit trails that do not lead to the resurrected one who can make you alive. That's the implication. That's, that's a miserable, depressing narrative, right? That's what's, that's what's behind it, though, if it is true. That that is what's behind it. Which means this. People don't reject the gospel of Jesus for rational, reasonable reasons. People reject the gospel. People reject scripture for irrational reasons. Now stick with me here because I'm about to implicate us Christians too. There are only irrational reasons to doubt this account. There are not rational reasons to doubt it. But it's not just those outside who doubt this account. Remember the disciples themselves. I love this. I love Matthew for including this in this account because he could have left it out. Did you pick up on it? When the disciples meet Jesus on the mountain and they worshipped him, that's what you expect. What's he say next? (laughs) Parentheses. And some of these 11 pillars of the church doubted. I love that. Because if Matthew was trying to sanitize this story, that would have fallen on the editor's floor. Cut out. Uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to put that out into a story that's going to you know, span the globe for thousands and thousands of years. But he leaves it in. Why? Why? Because he's showing that this, that this, this doubt, this hesitancy to embrace this disruption of Jesus raised from the dead is in us all. What did the disciples of the the devil, the the chief priests and the elders, have in common with the disciples of Jesus? Both were hesitant to some extent, different extents, but to some extent there was some resistance, some pushback in their heart about what this all means for them now. A little bit of love for the comfort of the status quo. How do I know this is in our hearts? Let me ask you a question. Personal case study. It's been two months since Easter Sunday when I imagine 
Manuel or whoever was preaching that week talked about the resurrection of Jesus. What in your life has changed as a result of being confronted again with that two months ago? What specific, tangible things are different? What action steps did you take two months ago when you were confronted anew with the resurrection of Jesus? If you are like me, brothers and sisters, not much has changed. Why? Because I love my life the way it is. I, I want to change. I like the idea of change. But I also I love, I love the routine. We're like the disciples on that mountain. To some extent, we're like the disciples in the chief priests and scribes' room being sent out. We're resistant to it too because it's inconvenient to allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ to wash over you like a giant wave that just causes you to tumble. It's inconvenient. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? As we realize that it's not just those people out there or those people back in Matthew 28 that were resistant to it, but what happens when we look in the mirror and say, there's some doubt in my heart too? Maybe I don't doubt the biblical account, but I functionally doubt rearranging my life around this. What happens? Well, here's our way out of that. Realize a couple of things. Discipleship. Being a Christian is inherently filled with conflict. Evangelism is inherently filled with conflict. It's two worlds confronting each other. It's cell phone having a head-on collision with landline. It's Netflix having a head-on collision with Hollywood. It's the Spirit of Jesus who loves you and pursues you and teaches you and grows you having a head-on collision with the old you who isn't terribly interested in your life being continually rearranged and messed up. Discipleship, growing as a Christian. The Christian life is head-on collision after head-on collision. The Spirit of Jesus who has freed you and is freeing you with the old us that loves the old way. Evangelism, going out, talking about the gospel is head-on collision. It's gracious, it's winsome, it's patient, it's filled with listening. But at the end of the day, is it not filled with Jesus' account of that day and the devil's account of that day? Will there not be a collision eventually between those two uh, worldviews? And so, what does this mean? What's the hope in this? Embrace what God is already doing in your life. Where is Jesus producing some interruption in you right now? Some disruption? Where is he messing with that prized area of your life that was always organized and in order and predictable and now it's not? Finances, marriage, kids, job, health. Where is the spirit of Jesus pulling you in to this beautiful disruption? so that you will cling to the living one, cling to his life, yield yourself to him more and more. These are some of the ways that we move forward. The other way is this. How did Jesus conquer the resistance to his resurrection? He showed up, right? How did he conquer the resistance... Uh, How did he conquer the unbelief of the women who went to the tomb to dress his body? He showed up. How did he do it to the the 11 disciples who didn't believe he was really raised up? He showed up. How did he do it to Saul of Tarsus who didn't believe? He showed up. 
How did he do it to all these people through Acts you've been looking at? He shows up. Either in his word, like right now, he knocks on your door and he says, Hey, I'm for you. I'm not busting down the door to burn your house down. I'm busting down the door to save you. Or he does it through his people. Or he does it... Uh, he does it through His Spirit convicting you. He shows up. Jesus shows up personally to say, Hey, I'm not here to ruin your life, to disrupt it in a harmful way. I'm here to disrupt it in a restorative, transforming way. And so every, one of, every person in this room is either a person who has already met the living Jesus personally, or you're a person who could meet Him today this living Jesus personally, through his word, through his people, through calling out to him. That's how he conquers your resistance. But you must deal with him, right? You have to deal with him if you want to see that. So let's let's end here. We've talked about the resistance to the resurrection of Jesus. We've talked about the church's mission in going out there and conquering that resistance. Conquering that resistance. This inherently conflictual kind of engagement that's, that's gracious and winsome, but at the end of the day will involve a head-on collision. What's the motivation for this mission? Lest you feel, whoa, where do I start? That's a lot. I saw an American Express commercial a couple of months ago. I couldn't stop watching it. Win for the advertisers. And I showed it to a lot of my students, and I was like, this is what Jesus is doing in the Great Commission. Here's what happened. It started out, it was like about five or six little 10-second interviews with employees, and they were talking about how great their boss was. This one lady was saying, I have never dreaded going into work a single day working for this man. And they talk about how much vision and life he brings to the office and how they trust him and respect him. And, and another guy said, you know, my, my boss, he's taken so many risks. It must be such a lonely job he has to bear that kind of responsibility. But we trust him. When he takes a risk, we follow. We trust him. And then the commercial shifted to, it zoomed out. And it wasn't just you and me watching TV listening to these, but it zoomed out and there was Mr. CEO or Mr. Founder or the boss himself watching a screen of his employees talking about him. These were cutthroat, (laughs) grown men and women, entrepreneurs, kind of that kind of charging spirit. They're not like little teddy bears who... To a person, they were crying. They were tearing up, listening to their employees say, I trust her. I respect him. He, I know life is lonely for him. He's the only one who has to make these decisions, but we are so much better for it. I look forward to going into work. They were crying as they went in there. Here's my question to you. If you knew ahead of time the impact you will make in your family, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your town, would it change your desire to get out there and get busy? If we watched this morning a video from 40 years from now, and it was your kids talking about how much a difference you putting them in the bed and loving them and telling them, I love you. Every night made. Or somebody talks about how you lived on their block and they were lonely, they were ostracized, nobody ever came to their house, but you had them over for dinner. 
Or somebody said, you know, that time you told me about Jesus and the resurrection changed my life and my family tree's life forever. If you could see that video today, would it motivate you to go and, and be a part of this mission tomorrow? You bet your life it would. If you knew the results before the job, before the mission. Friends, Jesus is telling his church ahead of time, you are going to change the world. You will have an impact. You're going to turn this place upside down. I'm going to do it through you, my weak little church that seems so fragile. Jesus is giving you the results before he sends you on the mission. All authority on heaven and on earth is mine. And if you're united to him, it's yours. The world belongs to Jesus, which means the world belongs to you. I'm in campus ministry. People talk a lot about invading the campus for Jesus. And the more I've thought about this, I'm like, I don't think Jesus got the memo. I think Jesus already thinks the campus is his. He's not waiting to invade anything. It's his. El Paso is his. Juarez is his. America is his. He's not waiting to capture something. He died and bled for it. It belongs to him. All authority in heaven and earth is his. Which means church. This is our home for now. Let me end with this. When you're a visitor in someone else's home... That's a very different way you carry yourself than when it's your house that other people are coming to, right? If it's your home, you're on offense. Hey, can I get you some of the drink? You're not nervous. It's your house. You don't feel out of place. It's your house. You don't feel intimidated by their presence. It's your house. Now, when you're visiting someone else's house, you're walking on eggshells, you're tiptoeing around, you're like, can I sit? Do I stand? Do you have anything to drink? You're a little bit nervous. Church, this is your world. This is your home. Until we're taken to the home where our citizenship is, this is home for us. It's your house. We need to have the mentality of visitors coming over to your house. It's your turf. Invite El Paso to a little burst of the kingdom of God. Invite your neighbors over to a little burst of resurrection life. Be the evidence of the resurrection because you are the evidence of the resurrection. You're at home. Invite people over. You're not a visitor. This is Jesus' world. He has put you on offense and he has sent the defensive team to the locker room forever. This is the church's world and we've been sent out to gather his people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we, you're, not, you're not looking to your church and asking us, please could you maybe consider going and conquering the world? Please could you go and help bring me a little bit more authority? We thank you that you have already won and now you have sent your church out in victory to graciously, patiently, winsomely love this world and bear witness to them in our lives and in our words that you did not stand far off when this world crashed, but you came and you give new life to all who are connected to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.